Good morning. It's great to be back with you today. I'm going to share over the next few weeks some of the things that affected me in the last several weeks. But for this morning, I want to jump right into uh, the, the message. I want to begin with a, a story. I was a freshman at Carleton College. Went there with the great goal of playing basketball, of course. Really good goals, right? And um, I go to my first scheduled um, day of class in the spring quarter. It was a beautiful day uh, in southern Minnesota. And um, I go to this calculus class. And so I go into the class, and in this calculus class, the professor is sitting on the corner of his desk. And he's a classic hippie-looking guy. He's got the ponytail, the wire rim glasses. It's 1977, okay, just to give you some perspective on time. And he's watching us uh, walk in. And then we had a strange and awkward moment. Here is our supposed leader. This guy's going to impart to us wisdom on calculus. And he looks at us and he says, Why are you here? It's a beautiful day out. If I were you, I'd be out there enjoying the sun. You're just stupid to be in here coming to calculus class. This is a waste of your time. And he wasn't joking. He was being serious. So here's this man who at one point in his life said, I'm going to get a PhD in math. I'm going to become a professor so I can teach classes on the college level, saying to his college students, you're wasting your time entirely coming to this class. And I thought, this man has suffered a serious death of vision. At one point in his life, he thought, I'm going to be a math major. Now he's telling everybody else, math basically stinks. Don't waste your time with it. So this morning, in this message, we're going to begin to enter into the book of Ruth. And over the next several weeks, we're going to look at the, uh, some dynamics that take, here, uh, take place in Ruth's life. And today, we're going to see that Ruth and Naomi, her mother-in-law, and Ruth's sister, Orpah, they, they experience a serious death of vision moment where everything in her life changed because of what they thought would happen uh, didn't take place. Uh, for the year 2022, um, our th- big theme is identity in Jesus. And man, I tell you what, Ruth is so full of insight when it comes to what it means to be a, a child of God and what it means to walk faithfully uh, with our Lord. I'm going to do some wandering today. You okay with that? So this is not a linear process. So those of you who are very linear and love everything, just, I'm sorry. I'm just going to wander around and talk with you for a few moments before we get into the, the study uh, of Ruth. Um, I, I find Ruth's location in the Bible just really fascinating. I mean, think about it. It's in the Old Testament. It's like the eighth book of the Old Testament. And it's, it follows these great big hitters uh, in, the, in the Bible. Um, so let me just walk you through what I, I'm talking about here. The, the Bible begins, of course, with the book of Genesis. The book of beginnings. In the beginning, God created. That's the very first thing that we're told in the book of Genesis. And right away, in the book of Genesis, God's being established as our creator. He's sovereign over us. We're the creation. He's the creator. The creator has the right to tell the creation what's up and and so on. And then by the time we get to chapter 3, we see the big problem of humanity is sin. We've sinned and we've separated ourselves from God because of our sinfulness. And you're getting these huge theological concepts thrown at you that that do identify who we are. God is creator, 
Our problem is sin. And then we run into this main character right away. I'm listening to Genesis right now uh, uh, again. Um, while I was gone, I listened to the New Testament. And uh, I like to do it like in big sections. I like to listen to 30, 40 chapters at once. It gives you a little different sense of the Bible. And I'm thinking, man, Abraham was quite the dude. I mean, he was a man of great faith. And, and he's in there as an example right away in Genesis to us. This is how we're going to please God. By coming to him in faith. By giving him our heart. God's always after people's hearts. And I got a book from Pastor Aaron here about midway through this sabbatical thing that I've been reading. It's a good book. The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. The Improbable Rise of Christians in the Roman Empire. And this book is on the first 400 years of the church. Now, I've done a lot of study on that, on, on, on that era personally. I love, I love history. I love studying some of the dynamics of the early church. Why do you think the early church grew so much? Have you ever thought of Probably nobody even thinks about that. Why would you, right? I think about those kind of things. Why did it grow? It's improbable. The Roman Empire wasn't very friendly. It wasn't because they had a great missiology approach. They didn't even have one. It wasn't that they were great apologists. They didn't do a lot of apology. In fact, they only did apology in the church. In fact, when you start reading the book, it was re-emphasized to me that the early church fathers, these great theologians, would tell the people, oh, don't bother or waste your time trying to convince those outside the church about the, the reality of God. Don't do the apologetics kind of thing. That doesn't work. They weren't really very evangelistic. They were kind of uh, reclusive in a sense. So why did they grow? Well, here was the author's take, and I'm really agreeing with them on this. Their lives were lived so utterly differently that people wondered, what in the world's going on here? And here's one of the dynamics that I think that, that they just found themselves in. They were in a culture where a lot of people were, you know, following pagan religions that weren't very satisfying. And there was a lot of push, so to speak, on that person uh, out of that dissatisfying experience, religiously speaking. Uh, you know, Zeus just wasn't that satisfying. Or, or following some of those false gods just weren't, weren't very satisfying. Well, at the same time, then you had these Christians living over here and they really loved each other. They had this true community going on. They had this authentic uh, kind of faith happening and there was this pull there was this attractiveness there's this push out of the stuff that wasn't authentic this pull by stuff by this this christian uh you know community that was authentic and so you had this this improbable growth because the witness was so strong and there was this push pull kind of effect happening to people I really thought about this a lot. I've thought about this a lot, I'll be honest, the last decade. I think the reason that we church, and I'm just saying we church in the collective general sense, I think the reason partly that we've lost our voice in culture is that we live just like culture. There's no difference. There's too much similarity. And what I been reinforced in is that God just wants people's hearts. He just wants us to be radically transformed by the presence of Jesus and the infilling of the person of the Holy Spirit. So much so that it changes who you are. And I found it fascinating. So I'm up there at my lake place 
I had two significant conversations with neighbors up there about the things of God, and I did not initiate them. In fact, my neighbor came to me and said, I need to know some things. And we just started talking. Why? Well, he knows I'm a pastor, that's why. <laughs> that doesn't count for you, does it? But, you, you know, we, we, just, we just started talking. I found it fascinating that that would just take place kind of organically. And I think that's the early church. And Abraham foreshadows what we're supposed to be experiencing here in Jesus Christ. It's this faith that just alters our life. So now we move on to Exodus. So we're through this, this book of Genesis. So we got these big ideas now going on. God's creator sends the problem. We could come to God by faith. You're seeing how big theological ideas are being established here in the book of Genesis. Then we get to Exodus. It's the rescuing of Israel from Egypt, from the bondage of Egypt. Now that just definitely foreshadows what Jesus would do for you and I. He rescues us from our bondage to sin and slavery to Satan. And so that whole exodus is a foreshadowing of ultimately what would be fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, right before I went on sabbatical, something really changed in our nation. And I didn't really have a chance to address it, nor did I know really how to address it. But Roe versus Wade was overturned. Okay. And I didn't really say that much that Sunday. And I got a, a couple questions as to why I was quiet. Well, I didn't say more than I did. All I said was I never thought in my lifetime I would see that law overturned. I guess that could be taken a multitude of ways, couldn't it? But at any rate, um, uh, so here, here's part of the reason why I didn't say anything that, that Sunday after that happened. I've learned as a pastor, process and be careful of what you say before you say some things. Prayerfully, Share, but don't just share off the cuff. So when I answered a couple of these inquiries, I said, I'm still processing. What does this mean? How does it affect me? So we're, we're looking at the book of Exodus and, and all that kind of stuff, and we, we see that God delivers and rescues us from the bondage of sin. But then we, we get to the book of Leviticus, and what's that about? I'm kind of jumping around. I said I wasn't going to be very linear, or maybe I didn't say that. I said first hour. Anyway, now I'm saying a second hour. So the book of Leviticus is all about what? Law. God's law and how to have holy living. But one thing I've realized about the book of Leviticus, and of course it's also articulated in the New Testament, is laws don't change a heart. They show you what's wrong with a heart. They can show you how to live and empowered by the person of the Holy Spirit. They can be embraced as a way to do life. But law does not change a heart. And so when I'm looking at this role versus wait, I'm, I'm pro-life. I'm excited that it got changed. That the government got away from sanctioning in abortion, federally speaking. Now, you know, it's just been pushed to the state level, right? I mean, the battle's still just as intense. But I realized that law being overturned, that still doesn't change anybody's heart. And who, uh, I mean, what does God want changed in us? Our hearts, right? And, and so for me, I'm, 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 I'm happy and glad that it got overturned. But I also realistically am saying, all right, now what? 
What does this mean for us and, and, and what, what do we do? Now, I think we, we begin to be biblical. Now, now, who is over the life of the unborn? Well, God is. Psalm 139, a psalm written by David, he, he, he says this, um, God, you knit me together in my mother's womb. So he's given us a theology, God's sovereign over the womb. And he, said, and he, and he break, breaks into praise in Psalm 139. For I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and my soul knoweth right well. And so we see from like Psalm 139, okay, God's sovereign over the womb. God's sovereign over life, right? And so I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm glad that our federal government is aligning with this biblical truth. But let's talk as followers of Jesus, okay? Let's talk on this. We learn from Galatians that the law is a schoolmaster that leads us to the cross. It shows us our desperate need of salvation and deliverance in the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. Um, and so uh, we need to, with sober consideration, realize then that a law like this that overturned Roe versus Wade, uh, that won't change the heart of people who are set against it. So this gives me, it informs me a bit on, on how I should approach such a, an occurrence. Again, I'm going to return to the early church. Let me give you an example of the early church and how they dealt with some really tough issues in their time. And I think they model for us how then we should deal with some of this, these kind of issues. Um, there are a couple of severe plagues right away that the early church faced. And that by the time of the second plague, about, once, uh, about 80, 169 or so, uh, the church was starting to get a handle on how they're going to approach interaction uh, with culture. Um, and so what was going on was they're having this really bad plague and uh, the people who were not followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, who were worshiping uh, the pagan gods of that era of Zeus, whatever it might be, uh, they, they thought, oh, the gods are mad at us. So they begin to erect statues to these gods around trying to appease their anger. So that was what culture's approach was uh, to the problem. And then if you were rich and your city became plague filled, you would just flee out of the city so that you wouldn't die from the plague. And then what began to happen was when, when people in the household were getting the plague, they would be pushed out to the street to die. It was just devastating. It was terrible. Well, the Christian community, the Christian community, they didn't run from the plague. They didn't leave the places where the plague was. They took those people that were put into the streets and they ministered to them. They took them into their house at their own peril and dying themselves from the plague. They reacted entirely differently to the plague than the, than the, than the culture did. And it was evident there was something different going on here by the reaction uh, and, and how they handled the plague. Now, here's what I want to say. I encourage us, church, push into the issues behind the whole issue of abortion. How can we help mothers, single moms of unexpected, unwanted pregnancies, how can we help them? Push into the issue behind the issue. Push into the desperate plight of some of these women who feel so alone and so, you know, ill-equipped to handle this. Um, When I was young... In my 20s, uh, Vicki and I both felt very convictional on, on, uh, on this topic matter. But here's what I'm going to say. Talk is cheap. God calls his people to 
to sacrificial action. The early church models that for us. So what we did as a couple, and this is more her than me, I, I, but it was a good idea. We became a host home. We partnered with Bethany Christian Services. And so what we did was we had Liz, and so they wanted host homes with little babies to take in these, these, these single moms that had an unexpected pregnancy so they could see what it was like to have a little one around. The chaos. And that they don't return your love very well. That there's a lot of poopy diapers. And there's a lot of demands that they make. And so all the romanticism about that whole experience is taken away. And so we had four of these moms come and live with us over the next couple of years until we just grew too big to do this anymore. And I thought, this is what you do. This is the sword. Ryan talked about the sword. This is one of the ways that the church pulls out the sword. We begin to sacrificially serve the convictions that we have in a way that's life-giving. Amen? That's helpful. Because I can be against something and I can protest it. Okay, fine, whatever. God calls me to what? Have some action that goes along with that of helping. And so, like the early church you know, we have an opportunity here to step into such issues as this and say, how can I sacrificially serve and help uh, the issue? All right, so we're going to keep moving on here. We're through the book of Leviticus. We're now on, on to the book of, uh, of Numbers, the fourth book of the Bible. And basically, this is the wilderness experience of Israel. Uh, and you know what? I take away from Numbers theologically, a big identity thing I take away from this, is if I reject God, if I reject Jesus Christ in my life, I will wander aimlessly through my life. I will lack direction. I will live for the latest moment of pleasure or whatever it might be, but I will be a wanderer all my days and my life will never be satisfying. It'll be short of what it should be. Then you get to the fifth book of the Bible, Deuteronomy, right? Now, these first five books of the Bible are called the Pentateuch, the, the books of Moses. They're, they're key, huge, big works that establish so much foundational um, understanding uh, 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 of God and theology and all that kind of stuff. Deuteronomy is a repeat of the first four books. Just so we really get the first four books. Then we move on to the sixth book, Joshua. And it is the, it is the account of Israel going into the promised land. And what I love about Joshua is it shows a, provid- a providential care of God. It shows the direction of God and how God wants to lead his people to a new way, a new understanding, a life. And then we get to the book of Judges, and that's where... Uh, uh, I think it was Ryan was talking from last week. And what I like about the book of Judges is it shows you so vividly, you, if you don't follow God, consequences, things don't go very well and you suffer. And once you realize, oh, I'm suffering and you, you, give your, you, know, you, you dedicate yourself to God, then you come over here and experience God's blessing and his, uh, uh, and his care. And so you get these first seven books of the Bible. Man, they're huge, right? They're just huge in establishing... Um, you know, truths about God. So then you get to Ruth, <laughs> the book we're going to look at for the next five weeks. It's four chapters long. It's tiny. It has a, 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 a marked love story going on in it. It's basically about the devastation that some people face and how God takes their rune and redeems it. And as I begin to look at Ruth, I thought, theologically, this is a huge work. 
It establishes so much identity in Christ and what it's about to be a, a, a God follower. It's just huge in that regard. But it's short. And so sometimes I think we read it and we think it's a love story between Boaz and Ruth. And it is. But it's so much more. And we're going to see here that God takes a ruined life that appears to be a ruined life. And by the time he gets done with Ruth, she experiences redemption and restoration and all that kind of, you know, uh, great work of God. So we're going to begin by reading Ruth chapter 1. Have I messed you up enough now? I've just been wandering all over. Now we're going to get, it to, the, we're going to get to the message, Ruth chapter 1. And we're going to look at death of a vision this morning. So I know I wandered around. That was a long wandering, but that's okay. I've been gone for a while. And I don't have any very coherent thoughts going on right now. So I'll just share my incoherent thoughts with you all. So here we go. Ruth chapter 1. I'm going to read for you. In the days when the judges ruled. So this is, you know, when Samson was, you know, a hero. And all these biggies that we talked about, um, you know, here over the last month. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from, the Bethle- from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. The Bible just states stuff so like succinctly. I mean, her husband died. That's sad, right? It's a big deal. And she's left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other named Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon, Milan, Milan and Kilian also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. This is devastating. Right? One thing I've experienced as I've gotten older is the death of a lot of people I love. And I tell you, sometimes it's just hard to recover from some of them. You think, you know, I know everything. I know the Lord Jesus Christ. I know all this kind of stuff. But still, the death of your husband and the death of your two sons, that's, that's just a terribly hard thing to have happen. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughter-in-laws, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughter-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. Now I want us to read verses 16 and 17 out out loud here together. You're going to read verse 16 and 17 with me from from the overhead here. So, So read this with me out loud. 
But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Quite a statement of faith. Quite a statement she makes there. So I'll finish reading here. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi. She told them, call me Mara. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. So we're in the days of Judges here. And like Samson and some of these other greats that were put forth in the book of Judges, now we meet this other person. I think it's on the same level, and her name is Ruth. And her story is so memorable. She's such a memorable character. And, and the whole book of Ruth begins with this, what I call, dream of a better life. So Emelech and Naomi, they're in this place of, of famine in Israel, and, 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 and they're just thinking, well, life will be better over more. Let's go there and let's start again. Let's have a, 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 a better life. How many of you dream of a better life? Anybody in here? I mean, we work towards it, right? You go to college because you're dreaming of a better life. You get married, right? Because you want a good life. You're going to have some kids and all that. And you dream of this life. You dream of what could be. And it's healthy and it's good. And it's extraordinarily human uh, to dream of a better life. What dreams have you had? Have you had some dreams? I hope you have. It's good to have dreams. So Elimelech and Naomi with their sons uh, Malon and Kilian left the famine of Israel, the desperation of Israel, and they moved to Moab for a better life. But it didn't seem to work out at all. Right away, we're told Elimelech dies. And then 10 years later, both sons die. And who's left? Ruth and two daughter-in-laws. And life once again is what? Really hard. It's really bitter. And they experience the death of a dream. So Naomi, Ruth, and Oprah experience the death of a dream. And this is such a common human experience to have a death of a dream. So have you ever had the experience of a death of a dream? I think we all have. We may not use this language, but I think we've all experienced this to some level or another. For instance, a school major that didn't work out. I remember... My son, Nate, going off to UND in North Dakota, and he was going to be a PT major, physical therapy. And he goes there his freshman year, and I could see that he, it wasn't working out for him. He, he, he wasn't very happy. And I remember talking with him towards the end of that freshman year um, about, about what was going on. And he says, I just, I don't like this. I don't like the classes. And, and we, got, we talked, well, what do you like? English. <laughs> I said, are you my kid? But anyway, <laughs> nothing wrong with English, you know. But and he goes, but I don't ever know what to do with English. I said, but you don't like what you're doing now, right? Yeah, well, 
switch and be a teacher or something, which he is. He's an English teacher now. Um, there had to be this death of a dream. I, I'm not going to be a PT person. I'm going to be an English teacher, I guess. It's a frequent kind of experience that we have as human beings, a death of a dream uh, that just doesn't work out, a job that doesn't work out. How, I remember studying uh, my first job um, for, for 3M some 40 years ago. And at that time, it was really common for you to work your entire career at one place. I'm saying that with a little smile now because now it's common for people to have six to 12 different jobs over their lifetime, which means that the person is having a death of a dream, that job isn't going to work out, and they're going to go to a new job, and that's becoming kind of a, a common experience. Here's one that's really hard, wanting to have a child, maybe as a, a married couple, but unable to do so. That's death of a dream. I, I've talked to a, a lot of uh, couples that they're infertile, and it's super hard. They want to have a child. Now, there's other ways to do that. Adoption, foster care, some of those things are avenues. Uh, but again, if, if you, you want to have a child and you can't have it, it just it, something dies. There's a death of a dream. Here's one that we do to our kids that I think is on us parents. Dreaming of a sports career that never came to be. I'm going to say this bluntly because I love you all. Most of your kids aren't that good. <laughs> and when you tell them that they're that good and you put into their little hearts that they're going to be a professional hockey player, a professional football player, a professional basketball player, you're setting that person up for the death of a dream. Because very, very few people achieve that. Very few. And they're usually monster talented and have huge bodies and are super athletic. And so dreaming of a sports career that, that never came to be, that's a common death of a dream. Um, I grew up in a family that uh, my parents fought a lot about money. And uh, it, was, it was tough. And uh, I think a lot of families experience a death of the dream that, in that regard. They don't have enough money. They don't have the money to travel. They don't have the money to buy food. They don't have the money to pay for rent or health insurance or whatever. And it's just kind of like something dies in you. It's kind of a death uh, of a dream. How about a pandemic that messes you up? How many of you the last couple of years said, yay for the pandemic? I'm really liking Zoom. I'm really liking staying home. I like wearing masks. I, I, I tell you what, at one point in, 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 in a couple years ago, I didn't want to talk to anybody about a mask anymore. I didn't care. Oh, that was harsh, wasn't it? But, but you know, I just, that, that's not what I want to spend my life talking about. Amen? That's just not what I want to, it's not what I want to focus on. Yeah, and boy, we went through this, this pandemic and I had a lot of plans. <laughs> Aaron and I were commensurating one time. Neither one of us would go into ministry if we knew that we were going to preach to a camera for three months. That's just not, uh, what do you call it to? I'm called to preach to a camera. I hated it. It's like you're six feet from this camera and you're staring at it and you're trying to, trying to whatever, feign passion and stuff like that. There'd be no good life for these women in Moab. There'd be no children in Moab. All three marriages were done in Moab. Naomi determines it's time to go back to Israel. She encouraged her daughter-in-law, just go back 
to your people, go back to your gods. Almost saying, pretend this never even happened. Just start over and go back. And this is pivotal life change that takes place right here. And um, I'm going to state it this way. Sometimes we have to relinquish plans that aren't going to be realized. These three women had to relinquish plans that weren't going to be realized. They weren't going to have families in Moab. They weren't going to have a life in Moab. They weren't going to have prosperity in Moab. Just wasn't going to happen. And for each of the messages over the next several weeks, um, I'm trying to come up with one main word that kind of encapsulates the message. Today, the word is relinquish. It means you get to a point where you just voluntarily cease doing. You just, you, you, you just voluntarily uh, you know, cease to keep the claim to something. You just say, it's not going to work out. And these women's plans were relinquished. They gave up on them. Oprah kissed Naomi, and she returned to her former life and her former gods. That's a tragic response to a tragedy. Even though Naomi said to do that, that was a tragic response by Oprah to a tragedy in her life. Oprah, I should say it right. Um, She gave up and went back to the old life. Sometimes when we think life ought to be this way and it doesn't happen, God has taken us in a different direction and it becomes a really difficult, discerning kind of endeavor because sometimes God is calling you and I to just persevere, right? And, and, and stay in there and hang in there and stay steadfast. Sometimes God is saying, you had these plans and you need to relinquish them because I am taking you in a new direction. And it takes a lot of discernment and wisdom sometimes to determine, do I persevere? Do I keep going? Or do I relinquish and, and go in, in, in a new direction? But I know this for certain. God never wants you or me to give up on him. To step away from our relationship with him. We're never to relinquish that kind of thing. We're never to return to our old life before we knew Jesus Christ. Orpah kind of represents that, right? She, she returned back to her former life and her former gods. You and I, when we've met Jesus Christ, there is no going back. No turning back, right? No turning back. You just do not turn back. But this move to Moab for a better life that didn't work out, that can be relinquished. That plan didn't come to be. And there's a time to say, okay, God, you're taking me in a new direction. Now, Naomi didn't do this with a lot of hope. She was pretty bitter about it all. Uh, She gets back, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, uh, meaning a person of of misfortune. I'm a person of misfortune. Um, But in this tragedy, the Lord is up to something, and we can see that as we go through the rest uh, of Ruth. But we're told that Ruth, she clung to Naomi. She clung to Naomi. And that paints quite a picture. They've all suffered this great loss. Naomi is just really down, saying, go, girl, just go find a new life. But Ruth clings to her. She clings to her identity she now has in God. And she's a picture of a refusal to go back to the old life as it was. She models for you and I how identity in God works. Ruth had had evidently an encounter with God at some point that was life-changing for her. She saw it in Naomi. Maybe she saw it in her husband. But she did not want to depart from that. Here at Grace Point, we have this 
mission statement that we frequently articulate to you. We want people to encounter God's grace and grow in that grace and then become ones who are used by God to give grace to other people. And today we're kind of looking at this encounter grace side of God. Um, um, Ruth had had an encounter with God and she wasn't going to let go of him. And so here's our key lesson we can take away from Ruth this morning. When plans don't work out, cling to who you are in God. When plans don't work out, cling to who you are in God. Um, Ruth said, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried there where you're buried. May the Lord deal with me ever so severely if nothing but death separates me from you. Do you see what Ruth is doing here? She's saying, I know who I am. I am now your daughter-in-law and I am a follower of your God. And nothing you say will sway me from that conviction. She knew her identity and she knew who she was. I mean, this is great. So Proverbs 69 says this. This is kind of something for you to just consider as I wrap up here uh, today. In his heart, a man plans his course. There's nothing wrong with that. We can make plans. We can have dreams. We can have hopes. But the Lord determines his steps. This is an older rendering of this scripture here, Proverbs 69. It's from my 1984 NIV Bible. So if you're trying to look it up in a modern version, you won't find it stated this way, but I like how it's stated here. In his heart, a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. Now, see if you resonate with me on this here as we, as we wrap up. Over, there, over my life, there's been lots of plans that I've made. They haven't worked out. A lot of them haven't worked out. During these last couple of years, I had plans. How about you? Did the pandemic help those? During the whole time, what I was asking myself is, Lord, what are you up to? Because I had these plans, but evidently they weren't your plans. You're redirecting my steps. See, I think there comes a time in our life where we have to say, God, I relinquish on my plans and I see that you're taking me in a different direction. What do you want me to do here and how do you want me to follow after you? I remember my granddaughter. This is not what I ever envisioned. I, my first granddaughter graduated from high school a couple years ago, right in the middle of this thing. We got to do graduation on a Zoom thing. I hated it. I wanted to hug Emma. I want to tell her how proud I was of her. And how much I have, you know, uh, how much hope I have for her future and how, how bright of a kid she's, all that kind of stuff you want to do, right? And I'm watching it on a Zoom thing. And I tell you what, I was, uh, thank God for Zoom, I guess, right? You can have meetings without having to go anywhere. But I, I, I want to hug her. I want to love on her. You know, it's hard to do through a Zoom screen. 
These aren't our plans. These aren't the dreams that we have. But God's directing our steps. What is he directing them to when he does this stuff, when he does these interruptions in, in your life? What's he saying to you? Does he, is he, is he, are you open to and receptive that maybe God wants to do deeper works in you and more works of dependence and more works of, of, of getting after you, your heart? Um, in all these situations where plans change, the response is always to cling to God. And I've been telling myself that lately. Cling to God, cling to God, cling to God. Nothing else happens in my life. I'm clinging to you, Jesus. I'm clinging to you, Jesus. I'm clinging to you until I see you face to face and I experience glorification. I'm clinging to you. I'd rather be one who has my plans changed and be in the midst of God's directions and changing of my steps and having my plans fulfilled that are not in his will. So whenever God changes plans, I, th I think we just need to respond like Ruth, cling to God. And that's how we're going to end today.